Hello and welcome to Insightfully Speaking, a podcast from Kardec Group, where we explore spirituality, philosophy, current affairs, and other interesting things from a spiritist perspective. I'm your host, Adam Osborne, and I'm joined as always by my co-hosts, Anne Sinclair and Umberto Schubert. Today, our guest is Lolita Stein-Johnson, and we'll be talking about the rise of AI, a royal coronation, the art of Hilma af Klint, Ukraine, one year on, and what we got up to in Assisi. So let's start as always by saying hello to Anne and Umberto. So here we are once again, we have a great set of guests lined up for our episodes of Insightfully Speaking this year. How are you both and what have you been up to recently? Hi Adam, uh, yes, uh, been very excited of becoming a grandmother to be honest and to being present to the arrival of new life on earth, the new generation coming in. And it's interesting because it just gives you a completely uh, unbiased focus. All you can do is focus on the baby. <laughs> so that's, that was quite interesting. And uh, I think that we are enjoying the summer starting here in the UK. And uh, we have events that we'll be talking about later on in the program. Yeah, well, con- congratulations on the arrival of your granddaughter. Well, I believe no news can compare to that. <laughs> it is really the, the, the best thing that can happen uh, on this planet, uh, in, in my opinion. It, it's the most uh, important and uh, the, the, the most meaningful moment in, in, in life. But uh, things here ha- have been very busy and... Uh, that also brings us to a, a reflection about the necessity of uh, slowing down a little bit and enjoying nature, life, and trying not to be uh, overwhelmed by the, the many uh, commitments and, and the, the full agenda. Um, and well, basically, we're trying to administrate that. <laughs> and uh, here in the Southern Hemisphere, we have a particularly um, cold uh, winter in, in Brazil arriving. Yeah, obviously the, the opposite of here, where we've just had uh, about 30, 35 degrees in some parts of the UK. Uh, well, fun, thunderstorms as well. So, uh, yeah, maybe it's time to get a flight. So I, I don't I don't customize the heat that well. <laughs> but Umberto, there's some news about one of your books as well. Yes, well, uh, we did not publish anything recently, but uh, our um, uh, book Science of Life After Death was just translated to, to Portuguese. We have very good news uh, from the, uh, the publisher, Springer Nature. They are trying to translate the book to German, French and, and Spanish too. And uh, due to the relative success of the book for, for an academic book, a uh, couple of thousands of, of books sold is a considerable success. Uh, the publisher also wants to to write a, a second book on the topic, more uh, extensive. And so, so we are really uh, very excited and very uh, grateful for this last uh, developments uh, uh, regarding the book. Uh, our friend Alexander Moreira presented the the book in in the World um, Psychiatry uh, Association uh, recently in the United States. 
and he he reported that people were very very interested in uh, in knowing more about the the book and how it was made and, and the methodology and so and so. So we are very very happy with um, uh, this uh, considerable uh, success of of this project. I think that uh, Umberto's news there, I, I feel very excited about it, very motivated, because it's bringing together science and philosophy, and it's um, creating space to discuss things uh, that might have been sitting in the realm of re religion and things like that, or cults, and just bring it in, into a more academic environment so that uh, things can be discussed and knowledge can be disseminated and organized in, in different ways. I, I find it sort of uh, very encouraging that it has had good yeah. acceptance yeah. yes and i think especially now in this post-covid era that we're in mm. i think more people are accepting these kinds of thoughts these kinds of material so i'm sure it'll, all the other languages will be an equally good success so today we have uh, with us as a guest Lolita, and to introduce her, Lolita Stein Johnson is coordinator of the Spiritist Group of Brighton and Hove, and is also a worker for the Solidarity Spiritist Society. She embraces whatever life throws at her as an opportunity of self-discovery. <laughs> Lolita's disappeared. Which she's doing now. <laughs> Lolita, how are you? We've fi finally got you here. We've we've had some technical issues, but we, we're finally up and running. Lolita, how are you? I am very well, thank you. And thank you very much for having me here today. And you said what I have been up to today. Well, today is my husband's birthday. So we had a lovely cake earlier on, which was very delicious. So I am not hungry at the moment. So I am here <laughs> with you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's great. Well, thank you for being with us. Well, let's get started with the first topic. And I thought it's only right that we touch on the more difficult topic first, which is just to briefly reflect on what's been happening in the last year in regards to Ukraine. Um, we, you know, we know that the situation is still going on. So I wanted to, to just get your thoughts, everyone, quickly about what you have seen change over this past year any positive things you've seen happen, especially within your local communities? Um, if I if I may start, um, I notice. Well, I actually met people from Ukraine that actually have moved to um, Brighton and Hove, and I met a couple of people by chance at the um, at the bus stop, and. Uh, Obviously, we were talking and she was explaining, especially the lady, because she was the only one who could speak English. And she was explaining that she was a surgeon, a surgeon and her husband was a surgeon as well. And they were a bit uh, concerned that they could not um, use their abilities in the UK. They had been in Germany and there they could actually fully function and they were actually um, helping the medical community there um, with their knowledge and especially because they could speak the language of the refugees and they were a bit concerned that they couldn't do the same in the UK. So and that was about two, three months ago. 
Yeah, I think that kind of thing is a shame, especially as we're having a crisis of a lack of doctors yeah. and surgeons here in the UK. But um, yeah, there's definitely so many cases of similar things happening throughout the country with these refugees. But Anne, Umberto, what about yourselves? I think that um, for me, the, the, the war in Ukraine is uh, a very sad reminder of uh, our level of evolution on this planet, that uh, we're still not able to, to resolve our differences in a nonviolent way. Um, I feel for the people who are suffering directly, both sides of the border, whoever is caught up, I, I know that the, you know, the, there is a manipulation of the media and the different interests and all that kind of thing. But I just look at the human factor and people are caught in the crossfire backwards and forwards. But what is that telling us? That they reflect uh, our state as a humanity on this planet, that we are trying to move forwards, but we're still using the methods of the past to resolve our differences. And if we, as a human community on the planet, if we can't try and find a way to negotiate a different way of resolving our differences, um, we can't find peace for all. Because I find that uh, the war in Ukraine and Russia is a war in Europe. So for those of us who live in Europe, it's on our doorstep. There is war going on in all parts of the world, but as it's not on our doorstep, perhaps it doesn't affect us so directly. So this one is bringing that reality very close to home. And it reminds me of that, uh, what is in the spirit's um, body of knowledge, that if my brother or my sister suffers, how can I find happiness? Because we are all interconnected. So it doesn't mean for me to go around being depressed all day long because of this, but just to think, yeah, there are people who are suffering. So I can still have joy in my life, but I need to be thinking about what is my contribution to world peace and what is my participation in the volatility and, and uh, the aggression that still uh, exists around the planet because all of us give out our energy and what energy are we giving out? Are we contributing to the war in the sense of uh, contributing our aggression or are we contributing to the efforts of peace and light? And that's a very individual uh, thought for each one of us to be reflecting on how we can be because we are all in a way responsible for all events on this planet uh, including those that make us feel quite uncomfortable that was very philosophical <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm also uh, especially concerned with the fact that uh, human beings are sensationalist and immediatist by nature so as as the war uh, was moved from the center of the stage to a very secondary position. Um, people um, stop caring about those in need and, and those who desperately need support from, from many sorts. And I think we, we have to be especially conscious that uh, as, as the war progress even more and more, uh, the, the general needs of this population will only increase and we have to bring them back to, to the news uh, again and again. Yeah. Yeah, and Lolita, sorry, you were saying something before, but I, I did speak over you, but 
remember what it was that you were about to say. No, 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 it was, it was pretty much on the same. It's a shame that um, it has taken backstage um, at this time and it's not on, on the news as much as it used to. It's as if it doesn't concern us anymore. Mm. And it's, yeah. which is not true. And like Anne said, it's part, we are co-creators and it's part of wherever we live. And it's our it's on our dad's stop because we are closer. But I think we can take comfort in knowing that there's so many communities that have embraced all the refugees and helping them so much. Uh, local food banks, clothes banks as well, uh, giving so much support. So yes, these things are happening. It is here in Europe. Uh, but I think there is probably a lot of support that we don't see as well. So even though we may not be seeing so much about what the conflict going on, we don't necessarily also see the good things. But let's just hope that, you know, soon it can be resolved. <laughs> but, you know, we never know. Yeah. And um, just to continue the conversation I had with this uh, with this couple is, you know, they they were very happy that they managed to flee the country in time. But they obviously had a lot of family is still um, in the country, in Ukraine, and they were very concerned. And, and when you talk to them, it's like it does bring bring it very close to your door. Yeah. You can't hide. No, absolutely not. Well, let's change tone a little bit. And the item I wanted to talk about now, which has been a hot topic over the past few months, is the rise of tools powered by artificial intelligence, such as DALI and Midjourney, the AI tools which can create realistic images based on just a few words, and ChatGPT, which has been used by people around the world to write academic papers, computer software, poetry, and even podcast scripts, as well as creating songs and lyrics in the style of, of specific people. And there are many questions raised about the ethics of using such tools, especially as we can't be sure as to where the original information which was used to create these has actually come from. And there's also about the fact that there's a lack of regulation over the content being created and how it's being used. Cases that have been made public were pieces of music believed to be of well-known artists being released on major platforms and gaining millions of downloads, only to then be revealed that it was all created by artificial intelligence, without the knowledge of the musicians in question. And also photos and artwork all being generated by AI, winning top prizes, without anyone suspecting that no camera or paintbrush paintbrush even, was used in their creation. What are your thoughts on these tools? Have you, have any of you had a chance to use them or seen anything created by them? Well, and this is a very uh, urgent topic for teachers and, and lecturers since uh, some uh, works are difficult to um, to separate from, from the human-made or just to the legitimate uh, academic works. And uh, to some extent, we can discern which, uh, if we carefully read it, we can discern which uh, papers are artificially made and, and which are uh, 
products of our students, but uh, at some point it, it will be impossible. And that raises a, a legitimate concern too about uh, how should we um, proceed? Uh, should all exams uh, be presential or should we uh, develop new, new methods of uh, uh, evaluating the progress of the students? So it, it's a, a very concrete uh, problem now in education and very soon, if people start using it as a cheating method, we can predict uh, more serious social uh, outcomes from, from this uh, educational problem. Did you want to speak, Lolita, or should, should I go first? Go, go for it. Go for it. Yeah. So I must say, I am one of those persons that uh, perhaps are slightly older in this group. And I have seen the development of technology in my lifespan from phone calls that required, you know, a telephonist uh, to complete the, 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 the connection <laughs> to, you know, mobile phones that we can't breathe without. And I think that the advancement of technology, um, like all advancement of science, I think it, it can't be stopped as such. And anything that advances very quickly and doesn't have the equivalent sort of moral guidance with it, it tends to have a little bit of chaos uh, around its initial presentation. And I remember even like in the beginning here in the UK of the transplantation of organs, of human organs, it was all like a lot of worries about, you know, all the criminality that might be around it and all these kind of things. But eventually, the uh, you know, Parliament caught up with it. They set, you know, very firm uh, legislation around it. Uh, they had lots of ethical debates. And, you know, nowadays, at least in the UK, it works within good ethical frameworks. I think artificial intelligence will need debate as a society, will need debate in Parliament. Uh, to think where does the legislation need to sit because some people might be uh, with not so good intentions but progress is inevitable is that we just need to catch up and think okay how can we make this uh, be used for good and, and put it at the service of our progress it might be just thinking about Umberto and education and uh, remembering my daughter when she was doing her GSSEs here, thinking that in the UK, she said, oh, our educational system is not fit for purpose. It's creating people for the 19th century industrial revolution, and we are in a different situation now. But uh, thinking about, does education need to think about what are we doing in terms of education, what it means, uh, what is the evaluation uh, the testing methods, what do they want to achieve? I am not a teacher, please don't. Don't shoot me down. I'm just putting it out as a philosophical discussion because sometimes, uh, although it creates sort of uh, some, some um, uh, anxieties perhaps, perhaps it also creates a, a space for something new, a different way of uh, learning and being evaluated whether your, your learning can qualify you for this job or that job or, or this task or that task. I don't know. I don't have the answer. It is scary when you look at it like that. We all worry because we know there are people always uh, who are looking to, to cheat or to make money and uh, with evil intent. But it, it's, I think it brings us to a point where as humans, we need to question, you know, 
what kind of society we want, how do we want this to work for us to contribute positively, and where you know where do we sit with our own human creativity? You know, can artificial intelligence only rehash what somebody's put in there, or can they be truly creative, like an individual spirit? And I think that it might bring the spirit into the conversation of what makes us human. We are not robots. We are not machines. But we have been used as machine pieces in the industrial revolution, you know, like working the machines and things like that. So maybe it's about that creativity, that individuality coming through and showing why we're different than the artificial intelligence or not. I don't know. Maybe I'm just being naive. But just that's that's where I'm thinking at the moment. Yeah, um, and I'm like you. I'm like saw the whole. Um technology the increase of technology I, I remember the first time of being in london and the only way i could communicate is to the phone booth that we could find or if you had a telephone obviously uh, at home or even when the mobiles started they were huge um I, I think we always need to remember that um the way i the way i see it is if you have a machine let's call it a machine whichever way artificial intelligence, it, it, it needs input. And who actually gives the inputs are us. So whoever is giving the input actually has got the responsibility, like you were saying, and the responsibility of what do you want to achieve with it? it you know, if, if we look into the, the history of robotic cybernetics, we, we go as far as, um, uh, 1200s when the first ideas of ro robots actually came across so if, if we look if, at isaac asimov if we look at uh, who they called um, father of robotics what, what they created what they had in mind and we look at the history and like Anne said you know we are probably scared is the history but we also like i said we need to look at the future the next generations that are coming when we were um, kids, we wouldn't think about having a mobile. We wouldn't think about asking Siri, Alexa for answers, for questions or stuff like that. That would, that would never have crossed our minds. The generation that is coming, the kids that are coming or even the, your granddaughter, for instance, <laughs> my children, daughters in Australia, you know, they are, they are already ahead. You know, the technology that for us is, is still a bit scary they just sit down and just do it. I remember, I remember about five years ago, sitting my two-year-old um, son of my uh, niece, who actually lives in the countryside, who had no, no access to any computer at all. I sat him on my lap with an iPad, just doing sounds of animals. And in, in a couple of seconds, he moved my hand away and he started to, to use the iPad as if he had been using it for a long time. So if we think, if, if we see this kind of reaction in kids, we need to think about the next generation. We need to think of other generations coming out. And like Ed said, Yes, it's going to happen. A lot of things happen over the years. And in many ways, it probably hasn't happened yet because we are too scared. You know, I'm a sci-fi person. I love um, data on Star Trek, for instance, just to name one in a few. You know, I love Star Trek and the idea of having 
um, a future maid, which is a robot who's going to cook for me or cleaning the house. I welcome it. Come on, kind of thing. But obviously, there is all the issues like, you know, like um, you were bringing up lacking education. And it's so easy. You know, for instance, I used the, I used, um, the chat box and I asked him to actually do me a 10 line poem talking about uh, Hilma and Percival. So he put the quest, the quest, Ilma's quest and Ilma's uh, and Percival's quest for the grail together in a poem. And I was going, I couldn't have done that. <laughs> Not in the same way as it did it. So there are things that are obviously, uh, we always have got to look at the pros and cons of any technology that comes in our way. But a lot of things we are already using. You're already using, you know, some of us are using Siri, Alexa. It's there. It's it's on the cars. It's everywhere already. And we don't really realize. It's just having that that one more step, like you say, you know, doing lyrics, doing a, doing a painting. Um, but if we think, for instance, um, if you program, um, if you if you are an artist and work with illustration, for instance, I need to do ten pieces of illustration, for instance, and they need to be done in five, three, two or three days. I can't do it. But if I have an artificial intelligence and I can program my type of way of drawings, a way of thinking, of creativity in it, it will be done in what? One hour? And I can do something else. Meanwhile, I can still use my creativity because I, I input all that creativity. I put a lot of things of myself into the machine. So the machine will be doing still something of me, from me, not by itself. And the big question is, is being a sentient being not? That is the big question that you have to ask. Yeah, no, it, uh, absolutely. And I think you put, you put, touched on some important points there that, yes, in the background, just like we're talking about the issue of Ukraine, in the background, we don't see about all the positive things that have already happened thanks to artificial intelligence over the past, don't know how many years. So, for example cures and vaccines and medicines that would have taken years to develop but thanks to ai no obviously they've gone through all the all the correct clinical trials and proven that these things were found quickly methods for detecting cancer for example have been increased a lot thanks to the use of ai um but yeah it's it's more a case of as well of who can who well where does the responsibility lie for any potential misuse or harm caused by all of these tools and i think you you said it correctly lolly that it depends on who's actually putting in that command in the first place because information about making anything we can find anywhere but who's the one actually accessing that information when if you think if you think if we even think of the atomic bomb, for instance, it wasn't created for that. I mean, someone used it for it. It's the same way we're going. So whoever is creating, the creator, you know, needs to be, needs needs to have the responsibility. And whoever is going to use it, and Umbert said said something um, very important because, like I said, you know, I asked. 
for a poem. I can ask probably for a whole paper on a subject. But as a teacher, sometimes, if, depending on how close you are to the student, you will probably uh, see through the language that is being used, which was uh, Umberto was saying as well, you probably will see the type of language that the student is using, the formation of sentence, uh, sentences because of the way they, they perform inside the classroom, and the way they con convey their or opinions in the classroom. So you might have a hint, but that would mean a lot of work for the teachers as well. And have that continuing insight on each one of the I don't know, 100 students sometimes in the classroom in a university. Yeah. Well, there, there was an interesting thing I read uh, a couple of months ago about a uh, research, actually a spiritist research group in Brazil who used ChatGPT to create um, so-called mediumistic messages created by ChatGPT in the style of certain spirits. And they said that what it created was very, very similar. And obviously the big concern is, what if someone then starts to publish that and say, oh, yes, this medium received these messages, and here it is, here's the proof. So it's, I think, obviously take it with a pinch of salt as well. No, and, but, but uh, oh, sorry, yeah, go ahead, Umberto. Yeah, I, I think it's certainly happening. We, we have... Uh, a large number of uh, mediocre authors who are using artificial intelligence to boost their, their production. And it is very hard to, uh, to root out and, and, and to, to avoid. And it's hard to, to be prevented. So uh, in, in the following years, what I think is going to happen is that uh, we have to develop methods to detect uh, uh, who is, is doing such things and to which extent we want to identify this as, as a misbehavior, for example, because um, to a certain extent too, uh, people who are uh, able in, in using these artificial intelligences, they are performing uh, uh, competently uh, some tasks. Um, and Umberto talking in education, I remember when I was doing my master's and the university introduced a system where you, we were starting to um, go digital and um, handing in uh, our dissertations digitally. And your dissertation would go into a software where, where would pick up plagiarism straight away. I mean, come on, we've, we've been doing things already. And, and, and if you start thinking about it, there's so much already out there that we don't really realize because we started to get things for granted. But I just bring into the conversation what is, you know, the value of individuality, of, create, uh, of creative force that each one of has. Because when you think about the spirit in terms of... Um, psychological terms and uh, the individuation, as, as said by Jung, we are uh, all individual spirits. Uh, although we might have similarities with one another, nobody is the same. We are all totally individual because we bring all that, that individual history, that individual process. 
And uh, so I just think in terms of artificial intelligence and armies of artificial intelligence, you know, doing the jobs and doing this and that. So what is the value of the human being of that individual that is unique individual living on earth, having an experience? So I do think it, 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 sh it would be eventually thought provoking because uh, how, how much do, you know, what do we need to create? You know, what do we need to produce in the world? And uh, like, like you were saying before about robotics and taking away, this has been happening for ages through the industrialization, taking away some of the, the jobs that were done manually became done by machines. And then more like big industry, they're done by robots as well. Uh, less and less human beings running uh, factories, just doing a few things. So what is the purpose of a human being being on earth? You know, these are kinds of the questions that I think as humans on earth, we, we will have to ask ourselves, uh, even like I say, new generation arriving, what's their life plan? What are they coming in with as, as an objective for their incarnation and things like that? And it might be that things that are of a material nature that have occupied us in the past will be released for us to develop more time for personal relationships into, you know, connecting with ourselves. And uh, it could, you know, I don't know how the future will be. I'll have to come back and see. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I just feel that it, it, for me, sometimes it's almost like I'm living in an age of science fiction and I think, oh my gosh, how did, how did I get here? <laughs> <laughs> I was I was talking about when I was a kid. There used to be this cartoon uh, called uh, the Jetstones, and it was like in the future. And they had uh, like a little uh, watch that had like a you could they could speak to their their family members on the watch. La la la, little like a little mm -hmm. mini TV would be on uh, on their watch, and then they would you know, and then they appear on a TV at home. I mean, you know, Apple was already <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Watch and things exactly. like. That. In those days, when I was a child or a young person, I'd say, ha, 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 that would never happen. Yeah, well, Happy exactly. Jet <laughs> Jetsons, Dick Tracy, Star Trek, they all, in a way, influenced the future. But, yeah, <laughs> let, let's let's see what happens with, with how AI progresses. But let's move to another topic now, because here in the UK, we've had a couple of very special events which resulted in huge celebrations. I am, of course, not just talking about the Eurovision Song Contest being hosted in Liverpool, but the coronation of King Charles III and Queen Camilla. Now, the event which took place in Westminster Abbey just uh, over a month ago was watched by millions of people around the world where their majesties followed age-old traditions in a ceremony filled with symbolism, songs, prayer, and ancient rituals. During the three-day celebratory weekend, the entire country was given incentive to have street parties where households got together for picnics and barbecues, sharing food and spending time together. A special concert was held in the gardens of Windsor Castle, and a day of charity was was arranged where people offered to volunteer at local organisations helping community projects. Now, did any of you watch the coronation or take part in any specific activities over that weekend? And especially from Berta, what are your thoughts about these events? May I start? <laughs> Please. Well, um, from from here, uh, I uh, 
I knew about uh, one or, or other fact uh, because of my British friends uh, or friends in Britain. But um, in the news, the, uh, the central topic was the spanger of our president who <laughs> which achieved uh, monarchical levels. And that was a small shock for, for some. Uh, in, in, in Brazil, we have very mixed feelings about uh, that. Uh, it's a very uh, French-oriented political culture. So most people are strongly uh, against monarchy and, and many people even hate it as, as a sin or as, a, as an evil structure. And so, uh, of course, uh, it's not always uh, connected or associated with any knowledge about how modern and constitutional monarchies actually work. But anyway, it is um, not uh, a topic that we discuss very much and, and not unbiased. It's interesting. Before I came to live in this country, uh, the monarchy didn't mean anything to me. I've been living here for 30 years now. And uh, I watched the coronation because I was interested in the in the symbolism, in the ritual. Uh, they said uh, the last one happened before I was born. <laughs> so I said, okay, let, let's see what's it all about. So I, I, from a historical anthropological kind of point of view, I was, I was interested to observe, but I was moved and I was surprised that I was moved. But I think I, I was trying to analyze why was I, I why did I feel moved by it? Uh, and I think in part, it's just thinking about the history of humanity. So in the United Kingdom, it's, 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 you know, society has been organized as a monarchy for a long time. Uh, being a monarch doesn't mean that you're a good person. It just means you have the power. Uh, of course, nowadays, it's, it's slightly different. But it just kind of resonated all those centuries of history that gone past and I think and I thought to myself oh my gosh we're in the 21st century and we're still doing replicating this in some way but I thought it was almost like it was evocating the past and bring bringing it saying this is where we come from this is how I felt it this is where we come from it's different nowadays and I don't think that there'll probably be another similar one because I don't think it will survive much longer because of many factors but I did feel, I did feel moved and I did feel that the religious aspect of it sort of surprised me because I kind of forgot that it was all about, you know, you being chosen by God to be royal, blah, blah. But on the other hand, if we think about spiritism and our incarnations, we come into our incarnation with a purpose, with a task. And if our incarnation is, let's say, I, I want to be in the leadership of the people of the United Kingdom, uh, you know, if you can be born into the royal family and you, you can have that position of leadership in the United Kingdom. So it is not by chance that people are born into situations or families like that. And in, I know that a lot of people think, oh, it must be lovely, a bit like, like Disney, you know, being Princess Prince and all these kind of uh, carriages and horses and all this fairy tale. But I do think that their life is quite, quite hard, quite tough. And I do think that they feel the weight of the responsibility, most of them, and uh, how easy it could be to fail because there are so many people looking at you 
witnessing, like, you know, looking at them and checking on you. And I think in the United Kingdom, at least at this stage, is still a unifying force. And maybe particularly because of the history of the two world wars and uh, Queen Elizabeth, uh, that enduring presence, it is something that brings us together because the politics, they change all the time, you know, one, one party, another party, this one, that one. But that one, uh, the royal family per persists when they say like the Queen Elizabeth, how many prime ministers did she shake hands with, you know? How many American presidents did she shake hands with? And she was always there. So that feeling of something that's always there is, is kind of comforting in some way of like some stability or something. That's the kind of feeling I got from it. Um, yeah, it was strange. I thought it was an, a, in a way an anachronism because it was from the past, but on the other way, it, it evoked me, it brought me, say, this is where we, we've come to. What will the future be? I don't know. This is where we've come to. And uh, I thought, it, yeah, I, I enjoyed watching it. Uh, I enjoyed the people having parties in the street, although I didn't participate. I didn't really feel it that way. Uh, but I do think it was good that they chose a day for, for doing charity, for people to do acts of charity. I think that was a good uh, way to call people out to do something good. And of course, I enjoyed the, the bank holiday. <laughs> <laughs> the extra bank holiday. <laughs> Always a good thing. Yeah, I thought I thought that the day of charity was pretty much in line with Charles' um, work on environment and all sorts of charity works that he does. And I thought that I hope that that sets a tone of the years to come of the work that he's going to be concentrating, which probably will be a bit different because times are different than Queen Elizabeth. And um, like you, I, we didn't uh, go to any street parties as well, but we did watch it. We did watch and, uh, and we were quite pleased to know that even our granddaughter in Australia watched it. And she's all, she wants a, a crown. She wants to come to London. They're coming next year, hopefully. So she wants to go to the Tower Bridge. She wants to look at everything. She is five years old, so she's very much interested. But it was, like Anne said, it's an historic, uh, it was an historic moment uh, that, you know, us who have been living, I've been living for nearly 30 years in this country, and the, the royal family is part of this country, is part of our lives in this, in this country. Um, and um, it's that historic moment. Yes, I didn't go to London, but, you know, it was much much better watching it from home on the telly, but it didn't take away that celebration and that overwhelming feeling of what exactly was going on historically in this country, in this world. Yeah, it, it was a really special weekend. And because I grew up and lived in and around Windsor for the majority of my life, you know, it's always special when there's anything good relating to the royal family, uh, all these kinds of pomp and ceremony. For me, I, I love it all. So um, for me, it was a great weekend. Uh, and yes, the extra day, the extra day off work. So it, it was it was good. It was good to relax. But, but just let me add, it's, sorry, Adam, it's, let me add, and um, um, like Anne, you know, I, I was born in this country and um, neither, neither has Alberta and 
but I was always interested in watching the movies to do with Britain and the, the Templars and the kings and the queens, hence me coming to England rather than going to America. So I was always drawn by this country in one way or another, hence I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So let's move on to the next topic. And there is a film which I thought would be good to talk about, uh, which I noticed very recently. And it's a biographic called Hilma, which is about the Swedish painter Hilma af Klint, who received inspiration and instruction for her art through mediumship, having studied spiritism in Sweden in the late 1800s. Now, for people who have not heard of her, Hilma created very many very large pieces of art which depict various aspects of life from a spiritualistic point of view, and were considered the first pieces of abstract Western art. And when I say large, each piece is about two to three meters tall. Uh, now, the film of Hilma was directed by Lasse Hallström and stars Lena Olin, Tora Halstrom and Lily Cole, as well as many other great actors, and covers most aspects of Hilma's life with a strong focus of her studies of spiritism and the mediumship meetings that they used, which led her to create these large pieces of art. And in 2019, there was also a documentary called Beyond the Visible, Hilma Af Klint, which also looks at these pieces of mediumistic art. And right now, there is an exhibition at the Tate Modern in London where many of these pieces are on display. So, have any of you heard of Hilma before or seen her artwork? And what do you think about art created through mediumship? I'll start with the easy question. I, I, I am not a, an art connoisseur. I haven't heard of her before. Thank you for introducing her, Adam. I am going to go to the Tate Gallery to see. I am intrigued and I'm interested. Um, but I think that uh, I would just say in general terms, I mean, not just him, of course, she was overtly uh, interested in the spiritual world and, and her mediumship. But uh, you say that a lot of artists are moved, uh, influenced and inspired by the spiritual uh, realm in their art whether they know it or not. And uh, I think it's um, uh, when people say, you know, that their inspiration comes and quite often, you know, it could be more, they could be painting, but the, the, their spirit guides, their spirit friends could be influencing them as well and, and, and guiding them. So I think it's a work of collaboration. Maybe if some people are artists, they're going to hate me for saying this, but it, it is, it is uh, I think that for all forms of art, like writers, Writers, sometimes they say they pick up the pen and they write furiously. I remember the story of Dickens saying that he wrote the story, the, the, the characters of his stories would come and sit on a chair in front of him uh, and tell him the story, tell my story, and, and he would be writing quickly and they're telling their story. And so I think that, you know, the motivation, all forms of art, they do have an interconnection with the spiritual realm because we are spiritual beings. We are just temporarily in the in the body, and we might have forgotten that we are spiritual beings, but we live in inter interconnected with the whole spiritual world. I I was personally touched by how high ahead of her time she was. Um, she um, uh, misunderstood 
as often we are, but not as much as she was. Um, you know, uh, women not being accepted as as artists as such, and the way she had to, and and her final moment, having this idea, the world is not prepared for it yet. Just wait, just wait. It's like we are not prepared, i.e., yet for artificial intelligence yet. So you know, we need to wait. Maybe another twenty years as well. And it takes great uh, wisdom just to to come down and 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 wait because usually when you have the urge to to make something to to change the world, you don't want to uh, slow down and and just uh, administrate your frustra frustration and and wait for another century to be understood. <laughs> so uh, remarkable character by all means and aspects we could consider and uh, it is particularly interesting that uh, her work uh, shows or us or remind us how diverse and, and rich mediumship can be because uh, she did not convey obvious and clear meaning through her works and because it's abstract art uh, we we can question ourselves what what were these spirits or the spiritual world trying to to transmit through that? Because it's extremely hard to understand or, or to make clear sense of it. And uh, she herself say that, well, it's not something that I want to tell, but something that I see. I just see it and I, I have to express what uh, I see and the way I'm seeing it. And I think it is uh, very interesting as a tool to change our mentality, to change the way we um, interpret uh, interpret reality. Yeah. And for me, I, th I think it was so great to know that um, one of these people who was only recognized just recently as being a pioneer of abstract art is someone who had actually studied spiritism itself, not not just going to a spiritualist church, but actually going to a spiritist study group in the late 1800s in Sweden. And it's good because many of us don't always have so much understanding of the spiritist movement around the world, but to know that this was an influence for her, uh, I think is a, a brilliant thing. Yeah, as always, we have spirits who come who are ahead of their time because it's, they're breaking the molds, as Umberto said. They're, they're pushing us forward. And even perhaps by participating in a spiritist mediumship meeting, she's breaking the mold as well, pushing things forward, breaking the boundaries. Um, and we always have, if we look amongst us, sometimes mostly they are misunderstood. Uh, but then you know, this, we, here we are, like you said, 100 years later, <laughs> I think, oh, yeah. Uh, and so on, but what is a hundred years in terms of, uh, you know, the, the life of a spirit? Uh, it's it's interesting, uh, this uh, breaking of of boundaries and the molds of what. Even if you think about, you know, the impressionists and things like that, which are so popular nowadays and everybody loves it, thinks they're so pretty pictures. They they were they were not uh, welcome at the time when they first appeared because they didn't conform. And it just came into my mind as well. When I was in Perugia uh, uh, recently, I went to see an exhibition about uh, one of the first artists of the Renaissance. 
and it was quite interesting because he's he's an artist that he lived through the the end of like sort of the medieval art and into the renaissance and they had like pictures like he has the same motif and he has painted it in different ways and it's just so impacting to see uh, how they were putting uh, emotion into the into the renaissance and how they were using architecture as as a way of uh, controlling the, the environment and the world and it, it was saying at the time those first pictures they were scandalous because the characters showed emotion or sensuality and that was not allowed before and so it was like whoa revolutionary so when you think about this lots of times artists uh, are pushing the boundaries they're, they're creating new space for us to have a wider understanding but uh, if we are, we are coming into it, we're thinking, oh, this shouldn't be allowed, or this is too much. <laughs> it doesn't fit the, the, the rules of the day, uh, but they just um, open up new opportunities for, for us to, to perceive beyond uh, what the establishment of the time. Yeah, well, imagine if Hilma had access to AI at the time, you know, <laughs> who knows what would have been created. <laughs> Lolita, let's talk a bit about yourself and your group and some of your projects. So what can you tell us about the Spiritist Group of Brighton and Hove? When did it start and what are the activities that you currently do? Well, believe it or not, I actually know the date it started officially. It was 15th of May 2001 that the group started. So it's been going for a long time. Um, it was actually um, founded by Elsa, Elsa Rossi, who is now in Brazil, and Poblu, who is also in Brazil. Um, I took over about 2010. Uh, that uh, not as a coordinator, the coordinator was a bit later because I was kind of still being introduced to spiritism and uh, trying to understand and stuff like that, up to the point that one day I said, okay, look, let's stop and and come up, be serious about this. Do you want this or not? So I, I started to obviously study uh, more in, in, intensely. And it also, um, so we are, we are a very small group. We are still online. We never went face-to-face uh, -face after COVID because we have got people that actually um, are living abroad at the moment. They used to be, they used to live here in Bretton and Hope. So we've got a person that is um, always uh, calling from Brazil. Uh, one in Ireland, another one in Scotland. So we have be quite diverse. Uh, so probably about six, seven people most of the time. Um, sometimes only four. It doesn't matter because we are surrounded by other spirits helping us to do the studies. Um, I also work very closely with um, Solidarity in London. And my work with them is what we do, what we call um, theme studies. Um, which is a topic, something that is troubling people. Uh, for, in, for instance, uh, we had, uh, we normally do 10 weeks and we talk about one subject. For instance, the last one we did was, was about anxiety. A lot of people are suffering from anxiety. So we look at um, what exactly is um, bringing up that anxiety. And then we go into 
the codification breaks, we look into Joanne and so it's the other way around. Instead of bringing the books to us, we look at what is troubling us and then go for guidance into the codification and into the books. Uh, we've been doing this since COVID started, so we just, let's say, three years. And um, I mean, I, as a person, I can say that I, I changed quite a lot. Obviously, I'm, I've been doing quite a lot, you know, all the, the studies with Gelson, studies with Joanna Giangelis and all sorts. And obviously that kind of opens your horizon and your thinking and, and you go more and more inwards rather than out, outwards and or going the other way around and questioning a lot, questioning your actions, uh, questioning your thoughts. So it's, it's a path to auto discovery and those groups are helping quite a lot. Um, I also, uh, not as a facilitator, but as a participant, I um, am with a group uh, from Sweden. They also do uh, these kind of studies. So I'm there as a participant, not as a facilitator. So it's quite, um, it's quite nice to kind of open up to other, other groups um, around Europe or on the globe and stuff like that. And I think that's about it from us down here. <laughs> no, that's, that's great, great to hear. And I think de definitely um, because of the pandemic, many groups have sort of joined together because they've taken the opportunity of online technology or Zoom meetings, Skype or whatever, to be able to go, oh, yeah, look, we're doing this. Let's join together. And you, you mentioned about a study, which we'll talk about in just a minute, because it links to another topic we might talk about in just a few moments but i was told that you have an artistic side to you as well that you make some cards and that the proceeds go to good causes it does actually it does um it happened because i had quite a massive um health issues i had two minor strokes and i also uh, was diagnosed with a congenital heart problem and during my recovery, I needed something that I felt good about. So I draw my whole attention to creating cards. Um, it, it started with Christmas cards. And there is this, um, the Samaritans have an operation called Christmas Box, or um, I think they renamed this as Samaritan's Purse Operation now. Yeah. What is this? Is um, uh, people fill in shoe boxes. It started with shoe boxes or shoe box Christmas operations, something like that. And um, I used to when when I used to go more often to solidarity every time at Christmas. We used to go get together two or three weekends and literally fill fill up shoe boxes that we're going to send to the Samaritans who then we're going to send around the world. Um, as I could not go, we had a pandemic and I could not go personally because of health issues. I kind of felt I need to do something. It started with selling the cards and so the money, any money that I get from any cards that I make that I create or box cards and stuff like that I create, they all go to the Samaritans for this specific um, event that they create. What I also do, because I don't um, 
I can't go to London and help with the groups to actually put the boxes together. Um, so like, like last year, three different groups made uh, about 300 boxes each group. And what I do, I make cards, especially for them to put into those boxes. And the boxes, um, those cards, the, the message is written by the children of the spiritist group. So it's more or less the same age as people are actually receiving. So it's a personal message from the kids to other kids around the world. Yeah. I think that's a good thing just to clarify the purpose of these boxes. It's not just shoving things into a box. It's they're, they're going and they're filled with like toys and sweets, clothes and things, and they go all around the world, don't they? They do. They do. Um, and it's and it's quite um, touching when you see the videos of kids actually receiving the boxes. Obviously not yours, but, you know, similar boxes and stuff like that. And um, Samaritans actually encourage people to actually put messages so that the person just only receive a box. But there is a message from someone that actually uh, put some effort, put some thought into what's going into the box. So that makes a bit more personal. Yeah, no, that, that, that's brilliant. Well, well done for doing that. No, it's, it's always heartwarming to know that people contribute to all these things that can raise a smile, give a smile to someone who, even though we may never see them, they're going to receive it and they go, oh, okay. a card, a card as well. Wow. <laughs> And it is exactly that because um, as a, because when you when you are creating and we were talking about it, you get inspired, don't you? And um, a card or 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 you can't put a price on something that you do. I don't use machines. I I, I know friends that use machines that do like if we we're talking about about like, again <laughs> AI artificial intelligence kind of. You know, you just say to the machine, I want ten. I don't know, bunnies of that size and uh, no, I am the one that, you know, is going to cut, it's going to make the whole collage, it's going to go. So it's not going to be perfect because it's hand, totally handmade. And normally it's, if I use the machine, it would take me like five, ten minutes. But for me to do the whole thing, sometimes it's a whole day and you could never put a price on it. But is the creative it? Is the dedication? Is the energy that you put it? And sometimes when I get very tired, I just remember, oh come on, it's gonna bring a smile on someone's face, and that's it. That's that's enough for me. Brilliant. Thank you for sharing that. <laughs> now there's one more thing I'd love to be able to talk about, and I know that Umberto's been qu quite quiet because this isn't something <laughs> that he took part in, unfortunately, but. And Lolita, tell us about what we got up to in Assisi. Ooh, where do we start? Then? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So if I just introduce it, um, we had a, a get together in Assisi. Was it last month? It was a month before, I can't remember now, quite recently. Uh, and uh, it was the first um, gathering of uh, the family of uh, Joana de Angelis in Assisi. So this was an idea that we've been brewing for a little while and took off and, and it was organized, very well organized. And what it meant, there were people from around Europe, there were people from Brazil, and we all met for a couple of days in Assisi uh, in a place that was very Franciscan, uh, at least where I stayed. 
the beds were the rooms were very simple there was no tv there was no wi-fi uh just a bed with a blanket kind of thing very simple breakfast which was really nice in order to you i just told my family look there's going to be no wi-fi i just like almost like a retreat uh, and in this fabulous setting, which is the city of Assisi, which is a, a completely preserved medieval town, but greater than the buildings and the alleyways and uh, the views over the valley is the spiritual energy of the place, which is quite unique. Uh, it is a place of pilgrimage. Uh, people go there with the intention uh, of pilgrimage, but I think that... Uh, I mean, I'm not a Catholic, so not really sort of into the saints or anything, but I do know about the life of, of St. Francis and his connection to nature and his connection to joy, the joy of life. And you feel that in the atmosphere. You feel his presence in the atmosphere. I, I, I could feel it. And if you pray, it was very easy to connect to your spiritual uh, friends and benefactors. It's like the, It's almost like the barrier between... The material and the spiritual life is thinner there, if you can say that. And even uh, one person said, and I kind of agree, that on top of the, um, the burial place of St. Francis, which might or might not have his bones there, but it is a place of a pilgrimage where people go to pray, to ask, to thank. Uh, it's a very special place. And I sat there for, for a long while uh, doing my prayers. And so easily you could feel like, like a portal of light in that place opening above that that burial place uh, and you just feel like that the spiritual presence coming to assist everyone who's coming there with whatever their troubles are or their gratitude is a very special place uh, in the core of italy which it takes us back to a time you know in the middle ages and when you think about francis and, and claire and uh, how was the life of people in those days and um the power of of the symbol of the things that they did and i found it very relevant to nowadays to just you know release take off the excess the things it's like to reveal your true spiritual nature and reconnect to that energy it was something like that and it was re it was really lovely so we uh, you know we had studies and and, and talks but more important than anything we had uh, meeting up with uh, brothers and sisters that have similar kind of interests. So we call ourselves, let's say, the family of Joanna G. Angelis. So we say um, in Spiritism, they are like the spiritual families. And a lot of us kind of feel connected to this particular spirit. So we say like we belong to her spiritual family. So when we meet people, we feel in some way uh, connected. Uh, so that's why we call it the family of Joanna de Angelis, and of course she had that important um, reincarnation there in Assisi as well. I'll let, I'll let uh, Lolita say something before I hug up the whole time. <laughs> no, I, I don't really have that much to say anymore, but like Anna was saying, when, it, when it, I was saying one of the, there were two things that touched me personally, is, is the feel of the energy that was there it was gentle. It, it was a strong. It was really, really strong, but strong in a sense of being gentle, affectionate. You just feel felt involved with it in a way that is very, very difficult to describe. Because, like I said, it was amorous. It was, it was sweet. It was soft. 
but so intense at the same time. And you didn't meet very much. And um, it's a lot to walk up. And I can't believe how many stairs I actually did walk with all the, the health conditions that I have. I really walked, uh, there was no way that you could move around, that you can actually move around the city without going up. And I had to joke like saying, you're going up, even when you're going down, you were going up. <laughs> because the feeling that you had uh, around everywhere in that, um, you know, little village, town, whatever you want to call it, but it seemed so huge. And also, it was so easy to feel the presence of so many different spirits. Yes, Assisi itself, wonderful, beautiful, picturesque location, but not great for those of us who have mobility issues, I have to say. Um, we're joking before that perhaps maybe next time we have to get an electric wheelchair or scooter to, <laughs> to move around next time. I didn't see any <laughs> Vespers, but, you know, that's the, that's another thing. But, Umberto, you, you haven't had the opportunity of being to Assisi, have you? Not yet, but uh, these uh, were very beautiful testimonies, and I can only envy the, the privilege of being there with uh, a group that was in, in symphony and in harmony with this atmosphere. And uh, I have to, to praise the initiative because everything uh, we can do to uh, stimulate people remembering and, and cultivating the high uh, ideals and, and and ideas of this noble and and, and moral spirit, Joanna de Angelis, is uh, is worth. I, I think we we have to to have more uh, opportunities to to give Joanna de Angelis the the total uh, emphasis that uh, she deserves. Yeah, it it was it was a, a great event, and obviously. There were people from the um, who were doing the psychological courses based on the works of Jean Jean. Just having that opportunity to be with people from all around the world, there's quite a lot of people from quite a lot of countries who are there, and to be able to see them and share these experiences. And yes, a very Franciscan environment. The food was very Franciscan as well, um, but wonderful and we know that next year uh, the plan is for it to be in germany um but let's see it should be should be good fun should definitely be good fun yeah and, and although although we said the accommodation was very simple we didn't need more than that because we were so busy uh, you know taking into uh, into our hearts, the whole city, and also being surrounded by people that we had seen only online, um, surrounded by all the, the speakers that we had a kind of form of rapport with them, but never really seen them personally. So it, it, it kind of contributed. We didn't need anything else. All we needed was a bed to go to sleep, that's it. <laughs> yeah, it's like I said, I think that the feeling of, of a spiritual retreat I think was helpful because you don't need to worry about anything. You know, you just, the, the bed is there, the food is there. You just have to, to worry about, uh, about meet, meeting up with friends and going for a walk and listening to another talk and um, brewing ideas, brewing ideas. I think it was very fertile. Lots of people were thinking of different ideas and getting inspiration, you know? 
and we need that. Very part of that busy life of so many commitments mm -hmm. and uh, just taking uh, a few days off to let's refocus. Yeah, and 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 we need, we must say again, very well organized. Mm, yeah, very absolutely. Well, uh, Germany, I know very well, and I bet the food will be less Franciscan. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's been great talking to you all today to get your thoughts and ideas about all these topics, but it is time for us to wrap up the episode. So, Annie, do you have anything special for us today for our moment of reflection? Yeah, so I, I just opened randomly before the meeting uh, from the little book called Living and Loving uh, by Joanna Giangelis through the uh, mediumship of Divaldo Franco. And it's chapter five which is called Try Loving. So people raised to positions of mass leadership have always resorted to force and arbitrary domination. They paraded along the streets, crowned with transient success, carried out by delusions and intoxicated with conceit. They built up powerful empires, ruled ruthlessly, and were feathered and were feared rather than loved. The great philosophers who lived before Jesus, inspired by noble ideas, left careful instructions for self-liberation, written down in stelz and ancient parchments in clay and papyri. However excellent, their teachings were unable to touch the souls of men. Jesus was a different master. No one has ever expressed the golden rule of happiness with such wisdom. He taught through living example, and his approach was always a loving one, peaceful and pacifying. By pointing out love as the base and the apex of life, he changed the very structures of ethics, culture, and civilization. Jesus set love as a turning point in history. Since love is the source, the center, and the destination of all realities. In a persistent drive to conquer men, to conquer, man has opened up spaces only to fill them with horrors of war and desolation, waging battles and cherishing ambitions. Intoxicated with power, he spread his domination and piled up the gold. As a result, he is today tormented by huge egosclerosis. In addition, because of well-rooted old habits and pride, man has been rejecting love, which is the only prescription indicated to heal him. If you feel sad and tired of your day-to-day -day troubles, wrestling with all sorts of sorrows, try loving. If your load seems too heavy to bear, when you feel lonely within a crowd, when you are in between, when you are beaten by adversity and it seems as if you were entangled in a hopeless maze of insanity, try loving. If you are in the verge of despair, feeling weak and lost, try loving. Whatever the circumstances, no matter how difficult the situation that confronts you, try loving. Spread love like a fertilizing pollen made of light 
and love will fly back to you as peace and spiritual beauty. Never return evil for evil. Instead, do unto others as you wish others would do unto you. If you do so, you will realize that loving your neighbor is really the golden rule, the perfect solution for all human problems. Do as Jesus did, and you shall never get tired of trying love as the only answer to the challenges of life. Always try loving and continue loving until love becomes an inherent part of yourself. Well, that's it for this episode of Insightfully Speaking. If you want to listen to any of the previous episodes, you can find them on your favorite podcast service, as well as the video versions on the Cardec Group YouTube channel. Make sure that you follow Cardec Group on social media or visit our website, cardec.org.uk, if you want to find out more information about our activities, to send us a donation, or even just to say hello. So it leaves me just to say a big thank you to my co-hosts, Anne Sinclair and Umberto Schubert, and also thank you to our guest today, Lolita Stein-Johnson. My name is Adam Osborne, and I hope you can join us again next time for another episode of Insightfully Speaking. Mm-hmm.